A good idea is a good idea. And even if it's in someone's garage, if it's a good idea and it's going to solve a major problem for us, call me. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Deneen Voita sampled virtually every possible role in the healthcare world, including physician, entrepreneur, and payer. Today, she sits at the confluence of these roles, bringing new clinically valid evidence-based technologies and services to patients in her current role as Executive Vice President of R&D for United Health Group. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan. And today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. Here we are, David, in the middle of sports madness. I know you're super excited, aren't you, Lisa? I am. I'm super excited. Uh, and the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, reminded me that the number one health problem encountered by U.S. pro and junior hockey players is... Do you know what? What, what, Lisa? Facial and head injuries. There are about 30,000 injuries in ice hockey each year, making a bit of a health nightmare. Sixth most dangerous sport, according to sources who would supposedly be in the know. Um so I raise this only because I know today's guest, Deneen, is a pediatrician and a mom and also a major hockey fan. So Deneen, what gives? How can you watch hockey knowing the risks players take when they head out on the ice? What makes it fascinating for you? And most importantly, do you see any parallels between ice hockey and the antics that go on in the healthcare world? Well, great question, Lisa. The um, I think, you know, what's interesting about hockey to me is the strategy and how quickly the game transitions repeatedly. And so change is the constant in hockey. I think that's the biggest parallel I draw to healthcare. It it really does require a tremendous amount of strategy and it it constantly changes. And that being said, certainly, you know, speed kills. Um, (laughs) There are certain tenets that are really quite parallel. So starting with speed. First, to figure something big out, yep. uh, whether that's in drug development, whether that's in an adaptation to a changing healthcare system, et cetera, skills still matter. So certainly in healthcare, we have a number of subject matter experts required to sort of make it work, whether that's in direct patient care, in delivery of care. And I think that's an underappreciated aspect of healthcare, Lisa. So, and David, specifically, for example, how do you get services to people? You know, how does that actually happen? How do you implement um, the science that we spend a fortune on developing and then sometimes, frankly, sits on the shelf? I often say it's because, you know, for example, sometimes I go to a scientific or public health meeting, and I always say, and we all look alike. We're all scientists and public health folks, and we're the operators. Right. We're people who know how to get stuff done, and then they're rarely in the room. So I'd say skill, subject matter expertise, a constantly changing game. And you know what I'd end with, Lisa and David? What? A ton of fun. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to a game. Yeah. It's a yeah. ton of fun. It is a ton of fun. You know? You know, my mother's 75, and, you know, when she comes to Minneapolis to visit us, and and she's not an athlete, you know, she never watches sports. But when she comes and watches my daughter play, next thing you know, here's this, you know, lovely 75-year-old screaming at the top of her lungs, (laughs) 
I think the, so, the reason uh, I enjoy hockey yeah. games is because the people banging on each other and smashing each other into the walls reminds me of my favorite board meetings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me just take this and uh, to maybe ha- take half a step back because, Janine, you sort of have such a sophisticated and integrative view of healthcare. I wanted to try to understand a little bit about how it evolved. Yeah. Um, because you started you, you started off with a strong interest in, in kids and, and you were a pediatrician. Could you take up the story from there? Sure. What led you to medicine, Denise? I thought at this point in my life, I would be sitting in Grand Rounds, sipping coffee and discussing, you know, pediatric brain tumors. That was the plan. And it got derailed pretty early in that I had an opportunity to jump into the administrative aspects of healthcare early. And when I did that, I actually stopped uh, my oncology fellowship and began keep up my clinical skills because I was now serving as an administrator. I worked on Monday nights in the children's ER. It was there I noticed, started noticing all these overweight kids. And I had never noticed them before. And yet when I looked around the ER and everyone was overweight, whether they were in there for asthma, sports injuries, etc. All these children were overweight. And so I began to look into, well, what happens if somebody actually asked me for help for their child's excess weight? And I found absolutely nothing. So there was a a number of commercial entities serving uh, the adult weight loss population, but almost zero for children. And so it was at that point that I decided to um, jump ship and start a evidence-based weight loss program for children and families. And the good news is that the Academy of Pediatrics had very solid guidelines about what should be done to help children who have excess weight. Again, going back to my comment about operations, there was nobody actually putting that in practice in a scalable way. So you, just to take a step back even from that, I know you told me that, you know, one of the, when you were a kid, your hobby was work, (laughs) that you, you know, loved to work, you know, you weren't the one to go out and, and, you know, play frivolous games with other kids. You wanted to work. Some would call that fun, but. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, what what drives you? You know, what is your, what is the modus operandi that drives you and got you to that place of, you know, both physician and entrepreneurship? Tell us a story about, about your work as a kid. Well, you know, it's funny, you know, David, David laughs about, I, you know, those frivolous activities as fun. I, I think working is fun. Coming together as a group to accomplish something, whether it be commerce or, or cutting a lawn or, uh, slicing deli meat is fun, and you you um, it is it's also like an athletic team. You know, we're all on this team, we're all on this shift together, and um, and we're here to have we're here to a you know execute whatever the job is. But um, you'll enjoy it a lot more if you're having fun. And so I always um, enjoyed those various childhood jobs I had, but I also knew recognized my limitations and strengths. So for example. My best friend growing up um, was a lot taller. She was about six feet tall and a lot stronger. Her cousins all played professional or um, D1 football, her first cousins. Um, and she, and so we, when we had our lawn cutting business, you know, when there was a hill, now this is back in the days of, do you remember the old rotary push mowers? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I couldn't push them up the hill. <laughs> so... Margie pushed them up the hill. I did the clipping. Remember the hand clippers along the side? 
And so, um, you know, that quick recognition of, you know, what your skill sets are, what you can, what you can't do, and, and figure it out together. Um, I, 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 Lisa, I also um, I mentioned to you once in the past about working at a deli, um, and I was in Philadelphia, and uh, we had, I was a cashier, and all the girls were cashiers, and all the boys were slicers. And one day, I overheard someone saying that slicers made $2 an hour more than the cashiers. Well, I could slice meat. How hard could that be? <laughs> um, so I, I became the first female slicer of meat at Greenman's Deli in Philadelphia. And um, and there's an example of, to me, you know, how much milk could that take? You <laughs> Did know? you think then at the time you were breaking a gender barrier? Is that something you thought about as you've moved up in your career? A- absolutely not. I was... Oh, I never thought of it as a gender barrier. I just couldn't believe it when I understood that all these fellows were making more money than us. And so, and their job really was no harder than our job as the cashier. Um, and and I'll tell you, so at the end of each shift, at the end of the day, we stood on this, this board. And every day you had a, at the end of the shift, you had to scrub it down with this wire brush. Now, when I first started slicing, Al Greenman would say, well, Deneen can't do that. That's too hard. And I could tell this was not going over well with the guys because if I was going to slice and get paid the big money, I should do that piece of the, the dirty work too. And I did it. And he, you know, and I think it was interesting. I think I got a lot of respect from my male peers at that point because I didn't want any differences. Um, and I grew up with brothers. And so I was very comfortable with, you can do it, I can do it. Again, there are limits, like I told you about the story about the, you know, the hill. I, I couldn't get that up the hill, so, but I, I had a teammate. So I want to hear how you went from pastrami and corned beef to starting a company for kids and weight loss, because uh, it seems to me it's... It seems uh, like a logical conclusion, actually. Yeah, well, maybe. Mmm, <laughs> pastrami. Business was good. <laughs> um. <laughs> such, such good business. But no, but, but so we... Um, uh, there's not always a concordance between um, medical society or pediatric society, rec, um, you know, benchmarks and anything that's evidence-based because sometimes there are just a bunch of folks in a room who come to a consensus. And it strikes me that, I mean, we've talked about this often for, for, for weight loss in general. It's incredibly hard to get anyone to uh, lose weight in a durable fashion, adult or children. So I'm very curious, how did you evolve your business and what? how did that go forward? So... I will disagree with you a little in that the evidence, the published evidence for children before they go through puberty, so say about 12, is actually very good. It's about 50% success. Oh, that's yeah. incredible. I didn't know what it was yeah. one way or another, so that's really it encouraging. Is. And I think it's because, as you know, when you go through puberty, you become relatively insulin resistant. And, and then, so the teenagers do just as poorly as adults. Um, you're right. Uh, so... The good news, so when we started, I think that's one message. If you can get kids earlier, the better. And, you know, I always say lessons learned earlier, lessons learned well. There's that part, but then there's just the biology part. The second part is I do think, you know, for example, there's increasing evidence with the diabetes prevention program and others to show there can be successful methods. That being said, I am a 1,000% convinced that the genetics of obesity is an area that's ripe for investigation. And to number one, number two is 
how much how many people who are going through weight loss programs are destined to failure because they are taking medications that actually promote weight gain. And even that simple strategy of having somebody, a subject matter expert, look it up, or a general physician look up the list and understand what what drugs are weight gain, weight neutral, weight you know losing, and and try to um, if somebody is interested in weight management, make those changes, um, and they'll be uh, fairly successful. There was a nice article in the New York Times about maybe three months ago. Um, with Lou Aroni and uh, and showing that he, it was just an, an anecdotal case, but the idea that even just medication switching um, with it will can actually dramatically help people in their journey to weight loss. It's so interesting because you know one of the first things you hear in adult medicine um, uh, is you know experience, particularly among geriatric physicians, sort of on the other end, is you know the, the, the really experienced physicians. The first thing they try to do is peel off medicines because of all the atrogenicities or sort of un- untoward side effects. Right. And it's interesting that in a sense you're describing that among children as well. How um, I mean, it's sad to think of, of of younger kids on so many medicines or on some medicines, but it sounds like just by uh, selecting those carefully, um, you can at least help them uh, w- w- with the uh, the weight gain piece. Right, because I, th- I think we have this sense of personal failure, and, that, and we got to get rid of that too. You know, stop, that's not fair. And because, again, we live in an environment that's obesogenic, and we put people on medications that promote weight gain, and then we say, oh, you're not strong enough. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, yeah. So your company, I think it's called Mynetigo, right? Was that the name of it? Correct. That was a direct-to-consumer play at that time for uh, pediatric and weight loss, uh, pediatric weight loss and family weight loss. Right. Was that a viable business model? How how would that fare then, and how did it fare? How would it fare in a market today? Well, I think that's a good question, um, and you you know this better than anyone, Lisa. Timing is everything, and so I started that business in about two thousand and three or four. And um, at that time, there was an increasing recognition of, you know, the obesity problem, both in children and adults. So I would say, had I started even five years earlier, it would have been dead in the water from the get-go. At the time that I began this business, the, it, you know, I, I, I figured the adults had such good luck in the commercial weight loss business, whether it was there were a number of commercial entities out there doing direct-to-consumer commercial weight loss. Why not children? It was obvious to me who the payer was, uh, uh, and that's the mother. And so, as you know, many parents, particularly mothers, view their children's success uh-huh. um, when, when even um, as much more important than even their personal or professional success. So. I validate myself by how well my children are doing. And when my child is being teased and uh, can't join the soccer team or can't make the soccer team, um, I feel like a personal failure. So I I had a good sense, a a real good sense of who the consumer was and what the messaging was going to be. So interesting. Um, All that said, at the same time, again, 2003, 2004, um, there was a just a blossoming of interest in wellness, whether it was adult weight loss, smoking, um, et cetera, in, in throughout the employer and payer communities. And so um, there, we immediately got a lot of interest from the payer side. And so 
it, it frankly it was an easy decision to change the business model um and go in that direction uh-huh. and you know when i think about what the assets were um that were the the evidence based content the technology platform which at the time was a ruby on rails um very you know flexible technology platform um and we actually had an incentive system built in even back then and so and and interestingly because they were children we had the old you know we had the trinkets and trash of course but also just the gaming features so wow. um and wow that that's really ahead of its time right it really was um just you know right place right time and um so the um those assets though could be used at united healthcare and, and optum um regardless you can you know as you know the content can be stripped out and replaced with other evidence based content whether again it's in smoking cessation or adult weight loss etc and that's exactly what happened so united healthcare bought your company i know and you and you went along with it to to join that company yes you know you've been there 12 years now leading the charge and bringing in vetting and spreading evidence based solutions are you surprised that you're 12 years in at United? Did, was that your plan or, or, or what? So I, I, um, I, would, I would say eight years ago I would have said I was shocked when I realized even in the first four years how much I thoroughly enjoyed United and had come to learn so much. So and I, I, I apologize for keep harping on, harping on this, but it, the idea of how a a marquee organization executes um, and delivers and organizing healthcare for millions of people, not you know one at a time or ten at a time or hundred at a time. How do you deliver and organize care for millions of people? And that's a tremendous skill set and skill sets. It, it actually involves a number of people. And um, you know, every day I, I was there in the beginning, I, I continued to learn more and more about how that happens. And frankly, I didn't have those skill sets, and I would have never been able to uh, execute on that kind of promise. So I think the good news is, you know, I was able to bring an evidence, the evidence-based mindset to a huge healthcare problem that was driving almost all the cost in healthcare. Um, and so, but to turn those assets over to people who are better at then taking it to the next level, I was happy to do so. And unfortunately, uh, we've, we've continued, United's continued in this journey of diabetes and, 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 and weight loss. And, and certainly there are a number of other healthcare problems, limitless number of healthcare problems to address. Does, does United sponsor offerings for, uh, for pediatric weight loss? What is, the, what is the updated or contemporary version of this look like? I would, so what we did was um, the organization actually fund, funded a trial of the program um, with some minor modifications uh, in the state of Rhode Island, I believe, and we actually published the results of that trial because, you know, following our own um, algorithms and, and, and sort of rules, you know, it has to be published if you want it to get reimbursed. And, you know, you have to make sure, you know, it actually, you know, it sounded like a good idea, right? It was, these are the AAP guidelines. We're going to create a online and telephonic 
um, delivery of this program, children are going to, and their parents are going to engage, and they're going to lose weight. That all sounds great, but we needed to prove it. So we actually funded and and and, and um, contracted with a well-known pediatric um, weight loss physician. Actually, he's a, not a physician, a clinical a psychologist, and and we and we rolled it out in the state of Rhode Island, and sure enough, we got um, the weight loss both at I think six months and 18 months, and it's published in pediatrics. And so that then sort of legitimizes the program, and we began to offer that in a number of states, particularly in states in where we um, are Medicaid, uh, have Medicaid business. Um, at the same time, we, we leveraged the same technology platform, the DPP um, uh, content, and we rolled out originally a bricks-and-mortar DPP, and then we did a virtual um, uh, offering. We partnered with Comcast and said, well, can we get the same outcomes if we deliver this virtually and, and leverage the entertainment space? And that worked, and we published those findings, which that's when the CDC was able to change their criteria. And was that like your version of OMADA? What we actually did was OMADA and others um, benefited from our trial and publication because CDC could not change the recognition standards if it wasn't published, period. And so so the short answer is yes. And now then we started, we rolled the DPP into a, a entity called Real Appeal. And um, and now I think we had, in just this year, 200,000 people go through the Real Appeal program. And this is really interesting, David, because one thing we learned through the journey of DPP is that people don't engage with prediabetes. People engage with adult weight loss. That's great. Americans love weight loss programs. Right, right. And so we changed the framing of it, and particularly when UPS, UPSDT cha- uh, made um, adult weight loss uh, intensive lifestyle in- interventions for adult obesity and, and excess weight um, a B recommendation. So when, the minute we reframed, same program, but reframed in something consumers wanted and understood, it was it changed everything from our cost of acquisition to frankly the MPS score for people going through the program. It's through the roof. I think it's so interesting. It's so interesting because I, you know we've said many times on the show and elsewhere that you know people hate to think of themselves as sick, right. but you know calling it weight loss turns it into a, a consumer uh, problem, not a not a patient problem. Completely right. So you know I know you're there now and you're thinking much more broadly about challenges, not just weight loss, but you know yep. all sorts of evidence-based solutions to all sorts of big problems there. Are you guys, you know, more of a partner, build, or buy organization? How, can you work with small companies and in the giant United Healthcare, you know, milieu? Does that work? Or no, really, it, it's too challenging? Um, I'd say we do all the above. Um, certainly, it's, it, and, and this goes back to sort of stick to your knitting. And if we're going to work with a smaller entity, then we have to be really careful with each other about, um, how we go about setting that up, um, but in all the all the projects um, and efforts I've been involved with, there I would say the constant is there's no constant. Sometimes it's a licensing agreement. Sometimes it's a JV that we you know both spin out and, and agree to. Sometimes um, it's a, it's a investment, strategic investment, etc. So I think that um, if you have a, a good idea, is a good idea, you know. And so and even if it's in someone someone's garage. If it's a good idea and it's going to solve a major problem for us, call me. 
call me, you know. Can you talk about one of those partnerships you've engaged in? Is there something that stands out to you that went really, really well? Or one that stands out that went badly, yeah. either way? I'd say um, one of the ones that really made sense, we we knew about the evidence base regarding um, group prenatal care. So women who receive their 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 OB care in groups have, particularly low-income women, have dramatically reduced um, preterm births and NICU admissions and rapid repeat pregnancies and STDs, et cetera. And these are randomized controlled trials. And we wanted to study and understand what it would take to roll that out nationally, right? I mean, as you know, poor perinatal outcomes and prematurity are a real black eye for the United States as it relates to outcomes compared to our uh, peer countries. And so, but, but you can't just overnight change individual care to group care. You know, the office space has to change, the skill sets of the facilitators has to change, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we invested through our foundation about $5 million in beginning to study the scalability asset um, needs of, of, of a national group prenatal care. And what we did about two years ago, and that was all finished, and we, we studied it and we saw that, sure enough, at a, at a, using a scaled model of group prenatal care, we could get the same good outcomes. We turned all those assets over to the March of Dimes. And, right, because they are the nation's leader in prematurity uh, campaigning, and they've done a, a number of really good uh, efforts to to meet some benchmark they wanted to meet, you know. So we, we came to the conclusion that they would be in the best position to take the, take the leadership role in, in pushing for national um, group prenatal care. And we would continue to support them um, from behind and quietly as it relates to how we can help with technology and operations and, frankly, financial support. But um, they're the nation's leaders. They know how to get to providers and help them, you know, with the change men. So it sounds like it's a more effective channel. Absolutely. So how do you, how does what you do, how does your team's effort interact and engage with Optum? Yeah. I've never quite understood that. And I think a lot of people are trying to to to, to understand Optum is sort of the, the health analytics component of United Health, right? Well, it, it actually, yes. And a, a lot more. So I always think that, you know, Optum's uh, mission is to help the health system work better. And if you think about that, there are limitless opportunities. <laughs> so, um, and everything from obviously the analytics and the data are, is a big, big part of it. And because we've been committed to collecting and organizing that data for almost since our inception, um, it puts us in a unique position to um, be, you know, to really have a number of data services, have a number of operational services. Um, and Optum's the organization that increasingly, as uh, we get um, closer to direct delivery of care, um, that's where those those entities live. So MedExpress, um, surgical care affiliates, um, our PBM, the Optum Bank, you know, you know, becoming the leader by far in HSA management because you know, you know, as you say, healthcare is complex, HSA management is complex, and and you know, so having a health-only bank um, makes a ton of sense. 
So, Deneen, I know that you guys have all sorts of focal areas in R&D, opioid epidemic, new models of care delivery, transparency, etc. But one that fascinates me is that you're driving a polypill initiative, which strikes me as so so interesting considering you're not a pharmaceutical company. Right. Um, how do you, can you describe what that is and, and also what you see as your role there? Sure. So, you know, our, our group and our organization focuses, again, on big problems. So I don't think anybody would disagree that cardiovascular risk is a huge problem, particularly as we become an aging nation. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we always look for good ideas, you know, the evidence. Well, and, and, and often, sometimes those really good ideas are in third world countries, you know. And so the idea of a polypill is not new. It, I think it started or, or became, you know, well-known through the HIV, uh, early HIV days. And, um, but there's a lot of good evidence to show that th- you can get significant population-based risk reduction through a cardiovascular polypill. Um, and certainly adherence is always an issue and, and cost is always an issue. And so, you know, as we evaluate um, opportunities like a cardiovascular polypill, you know, we actually set some challenges for ourselves. For example, it has to be under a dollar a day, period. If you look at the cost, the ingredient cost of the generic um, components of a cardiovascular polypill, so getting to under a dollar a day is feasible. And you're talking about cholesterol, hypertension, all of the different... Yes manifestations there? So I'd say yeah, a beta blocker, an ACE or an ARB, okay. a statin, and an aspirin. And, and interestingly, there's a, there's, you, know, you can either do it for primary or, and or secondary prevention. There's a lot of interest nationally, um, and the FDA has signaled that they're very, they're very interested in particularly secondary prevention. And so are you guys collaborating with the pharmaceutical world on this project? Well, right now what we're doing is really understanding what it would take, what does the, what would the market look like, um, and really um, understand, you know, you know, this is, it would have to be a generic, for it to make financial sense, according to our analytics, it would have to be a generic under a dollar a day for it to make sense at a population level. And so, um, so, when it's something like that, who, who wants to take that on, right? Well, the payers may want to take that on. So, and this is a good example. Again, we're really early in the exploration of this, but maybe this is an opportunity for different payers to come together. It's an interesting, it's, I mean, talk about convergence, right. you know? You get more risk reduction from a polypill than you would from a PC, PCSK9, period. Yeah. Right. And yet, why don't you see people rushing to put that out there? The ingredients, are we already have them. Because they're generic. <laughs> because they're generic. We know we know the answer, yeah. and they're you know, and the other one is you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And so yeah. that so that's where I think we all have to start thinking differently about uh, well, who should you know invest in going through the regulatory process to get a cardiovascular polypill on the market like they have in Europe and, and Asia. Interesting. Well, I, I I think it is interesting to think about the convergence that's gone on between 
payers and providers. I mean, you guys are in the direct care business now, in addition to the insurance business, as many others are, between technology and insurance, between technology and providers. And now, you know, when you see med tech and pharmacy companies collaborating with the pharma or the providers and the payers, it's the, I think the lines between all of these different segments are just completely disappearing. It's really quite fascinating. So just one last question as the, as a person who's spent a lot of time in your life in, in the R and D, what is the, what is the most interesting thing you've learned about yourself lately? I enjoy change. Back to the hockey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I thoroughly enjoy, um, learning every day, something new, um, but I also am willing to do the, we're willing to do the hard work. And, you know, when I think about the journey from DPP all the way through Real Appeal, that took about eight to nine years to really get it right. And that's, and, and you, listen, Lisa, you're from the Silicon Valley. You probably would acknowledge that your, your real winner companies, from the it takes about the same time. It's a lot of hard work. You have to be nimble, change directions at times. Yep, um, absolutely. Yeah, be comfortable with change, but also be willing to put in the hard work. Well, thanks, Anine. It's so great to talk to you. Really appreciate having you on the show today. Yes, you too. Really appreciate it. What a fascinating discussion. And David, nice chatting with you. Take care, and thanks for having me. Today's guest, Anine Voita, was speaking to us today from Minneapolis, whereas we are in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Wow, that was uh, that was really really interesting. You know how the difference between her initial career path, yeah. thinking about you know Pete's kind slicing. of being sounds like kind of like an academic um, pediatrician maybe, and um, but she seems to have adapted very very comfortably to this sort of the payer world. I mean, she really seemed to, you know, I'm not sure most people would have described the payer world as fast change and dynamic like with the hockey analogy. More, I would have thought more of a glacier analogy. <laughs> but if you're gonna go keep with the ice. But um, but it seems like, uh, you know, the way she was presenting it, I mean, you really have the opportunity to impact change on the healthcare system at scale, and she really seems to be loving it. Well, I'm going to take the ice uh, metaphor to the uh, next logical conclusion, which is more of a cocktail. I think there's so many interesting <laughs> things mixed up here in what she does, you know, because I, and I think few people understand the breadth of what goes on at these very, very large payers, because they are, in fact, both insurance companies and banks and provider systems systems and research systems and entrepreneurs and venture capital. They do so many things there, but most people simplify them down to their insurance roots, you know, and that's really right. not what they well, are You can anymore. also see how challenging it is for people outside of the system to figure out how to navigate yeah. it or to learn to yeah, even definitely. enter and engage uh, constructively with it. For sure. Uh, uh, well, next time, uh, join us when our guest is Margaret Laws, CEO and president of Hope Labs. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. You can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. We are grateful to AARP for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. AARP's market innovation team works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. See you later, alligator. In a while, crocodile. 